Hey, Unnaturalists, I'm Emily. I'm Andy. And welcome to the long-awaited part two of Andy's episode of Unnatural. Yeah, you were a little upset with me at the conclusion. Yeah, you really did us dirty. I know. Let me just play a little clip here to remind people how upset you were with me. (laughs) Find out next week for part two of our series on the disappearance of Johnny Gosh. You're a fucking dick. <laughs> I think your anger was justified there. Yeah, and I know for a fact there are people out there listening who agree with me. <laughs> yeah, I've heard from some mm-hmm. of them. However, in my defense, there's really a lot to cover here, and I didn't really think one episode would suffice. So why don't we give a quick recap before we get in the meat and the bones of episode two here. Sounds good. 12-year-old Johnny Gosh went missing from his weekly paper route in September of 1982. Witnesses recalled seeing a man in a Ford Fairmont speaking to Johnny around the time of his disappearance. However, neither Johnny nor the mysterious man in the vehicle were spotted in the immediate aftermath. A massive search throughout the community was done in the following days, but to no avail. Despite the local police believing that Johnny was just another runaway, it had become abundantly clear to his parents, John Sr. and Noreen, that their little boy had been abducted. Nearly two years went by before those analyzing the case recognized a pattern as another local boy, 13-year-old Eugene Martin, who only lived a few miles from where Johnny Gosh went missing, also disappeared. After another paper boy vanished in 1986, the people living in and around the Des Moines, Iowa metro began to fear the worst, that a pedophile, or even worse, a pedophile ring, was operating in their area. This is the story of what happened next, and why Johnny Gosh might still be alive to this very day. After doing some more research into Eugene Martin, who was the second paper boy who went missing nearly two years after Johnny Gosh, I did learn a few important details, Emily. Tell me. Number one, well, unlike in Johnny's case, when the police were notified of the disappearance of Eugene Martin, they immediately sprang into action. As they should. Right. It appears they learned their lesson from previous mistakes in regards to their, shall we say, Black's attitude in the Johnny Gosh case. Mm-hmm. Remember how they kept referring to him as a runaway and they were like, oh, he's fine. He'll be back in a few days. Yeah, which is just fucking stupid. Well, yeah, a few days turned into years at this point. And also important because of their quick work, the police were able to come up with a detailed description and a sketch of Eugene's possible abductor. 
Okay. The man was described as white, between 30 and 40, clean-shaven, and neatly put together. Oh. Not exactly somebody you might suspect being an abductor, really, but I guess abductors come in all shapes and sizes, as we've learned. Yes. But you always think it's just like the weird, like the weird old, like fat geezer with those glasses. Is that what you're- Maybe a mustache. That's what your go-to is? (laughs) Well, I feel like that's- Isn't that a go-to for a lot of people? I don't know. Yeah, I always picture some guy with a long, scraggly beard. I don't know why. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. (laughs) Um, Another important piece of information on the Eugene Martin case came just one day later as a man came forward and said he believed to have spotted the 13-year-old in the back of a car in the immediate area. And he said the boy looked like he had been hit in the face. However, sadly, this information didn't didn't appear to be super helpful as the man wasn't able to identify the type of car that was being driven at the time, which obviously is a very important piece of information that you are not giving to investigators. Oh, jeez. Not only did he not have the license plate, just not even the make and model, it sounds like. so. It had doors and a wheel, at least one wheel, and an engine. Uh, I don't know. It could be, probably. could be a white van. Yeah. Could be one of those four Ford Fairmonts. I don't know. Maybe a Model T. I don't know. So Johnny Gosh's parents actually reached out to Eugene Martin's parents to kind of offer any support they might be able to give shortly after. I mean, they did have quite a bit in common. Yeah. They shared a close proximity to one another and have strikingly similar cases involving their adolescent sons, but they were also linked in another way, Emily. What's that? Well, remember in our previous episode how we spoke about the era of milk carton kids in the U.S.? Yes. Well, the newly founded National Center for Missing and Exploited Children chose both Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin as two of the first kids ever to have their pictures printed on the back of milk cartons in the country. Wow. But unfortunately, things would not get any easier for the Goshes. In fact, they would be involved in a runaround of sorts of their very own the very next year. So, a break in the Johnny Gosh case had kind of come out of nowhere. It was nearly three years after he disappeared. In 1985, Noreen Gosh was in Kansas City, Missouri. She was trying to gain more regional attention for the case. Yeah, as one does. And she was approached by a husky man who called himself Samuel Forbes Dakota. Now, Dakota told her in confidence that he knew exactly what happened to her son, and he would be writing her a letter in the coming weeks detailing everything. What? Right? I don't know whether or not Noreen believed the guy at the time, but I can tell you that this man did, in fact, send her a letter shortly after they met, like he said he would. Wow. That kind of surprises me a little bit. (laughs) Something else that might surprise you. Have you ever heard of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang? 
Yes. Yeah. They're one of probably the largest motorcycle clubs in the world. They ride Harley Davidsons and are genuinely thought, I would say, to be pretty badass. Yeah. And even at the time, they had a notorious reputation. In fact, various law enforcement agencies had linked the gang to the mafia throughout the years. Mm -hmm. So, Samuel stated that back in 1982, he had been a guard in the Hells Angels. He also said that Johnny had been taken as part of this enormous and secret child slavery sex ring that the gang was helping to operate. Wow. Yeah, it kind of blew her mind. And he said that Johnny was no longer even in the United States. In fact, he was living in captivity with a big-time drug dealer in Mexico City. Uh Ah. I can safely say I'm guessing you didn't see that one coming. No. No. Now, what did this Samuel Forbes Dakota want? Any guesses? Money. Hmm. That'd be be a good guess. He told the Goshes, and by now John Sr. had seen the letter, that in exchange for $100,000, he would help Johnny escape his life as a child sex slave and be returned home to his parents. But the only thing was that the Goshes were strictly forbidden from notifying law enforcement of any of this. Of course. As it as it would be considered too risky and Johnny would likely be moved to another location if anybody caught wind of it. So they were essentially on their own here. You're kind of in between a rock and a hard place at that point. I don't even know what I would do as a parent. Honestly, I don't, I don't either. If I were them and just me like knowing how my brain works and just knowing how these stories go i feel like i would need some proof before i said okay we'll do this you know yeah like hey here's a picture of him or something like that yeah or just any sort of more proof than you some some biker saying hey i know where he is i can get it back for you hundred grand But I also understand maybe why they wouldn't involve law enforcement. Yeah. Because at this point, law enforcement hadn't exactly been their allies. Right. And some could argue that because they dropped the ball so early on, Johnny hadn't been found at this point. Right. So the Goshes didn't have anywhere near $100,000, as you can imagine. Mm Mm-hmm. But they did manage to scramble $11,000 and they wired it to the man who said that he would rescue Johnny and said that they would get him the rest after Johnny returned home. Seems like a fair trade. Yeah. Like you get 1%. <laughs> right. Just a few days after wiring Samuel Dakota the money, though. He disappeared. Well... First, he reached out to them and said that he was unable to rescue Johnny. Then he disappeared. They lost all contact with him. He seemingly vanished. Mm -hmm. Say it with me. Sus. Sus. 
Not surprisingly, the Gashes finally did let law enforcement in on what had happened, probably because by this point they felt maybe they had been duped. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't you know it, they were right. Mm-hmm. A few days after they told police about Samuel Dakota, I'm saying that with the air quotes here, they located the guy in Ontario, Canada, and they arrested him for wire fraud. Yes, they should. Good. Well, it seems he had made the entire story up to get as much money as he could from John Sr. and Noreen. It's just terrible when people try and prey on the vulnerable. We've seen that time and time again. Absolutely disgusting. Yeah. In fact, the dude wasn't even a member of the Hells Angels, nor was his name Samuel Dakota, but rather Robert Meyer of Saginaw, Michigan. What a piece of shit. He was later sentenced to three years in prison for the wire fraud. How, like, did the Hells Angels find out that he was lying about being a club member? Because I feel like they take that very seriously. They do. Yeah. Yeah. Their membership is no joke. No. In 1989, however, another connection to the disappearance of Johnny Gosh would spring up in the neighboring state of Nebraska. Oh, So, Paul Bonacchi was a 21-year-old man who claimed that he was abducted and forced into a child sex ring as a teen in the early 1980s. Not only did he attest that he knew Johnny Gosh, he said he was forced to participate in Johnny's kidnapping. Hmm. Local attorney and longtime Nebraska Republican politician John DeCamp spoke with Paul Bonacchi, and he believed he was telling the truth. In fact, DeCamp went as far as sending a letter to the Omaha World Herald newspaper writing of a larger conspiracy involving child sex trafficking in the region, and he said it went all the way to the top levels of government. You know, as disgusting as it is, like, it just, it doesn't surprise me, you know? Right. And that's gross. And this was back in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, people still have theories about this, uh, you know, abound these days. Yeah. Paul Bonacchi's testimony was actually so credible that he ended up meeting with Noreen Gosh herself And Emily, what he told her, gave her both a sense of hope and of dread. Oh, no.
What did he tell her? After speaking with Paul Benaki, Noreen Gosh was utterly convinced that he did, in fact, know her son. Why? Well, she said Paul had mentioned independently that Johnny had a very particular birthmark on his chest. And he also had a scar on his tongue and his lower leg. His tongue? Yeah, which seems difficult to get a a scar on your tongue because the tongue heals so easily. Yeah, but also why is he looking so closely at his tongue that he knows about it? Well, yeah, that's another thing. I have questions. Was he just like bibbling? Eating his like noodles and stuff? I don't think I've ever looked at somebody's tongue that closely. Just like full tongue <laughs> to hanging out? see if they out? had a scar. Right, like how often do you have your tongue hanging out that people can check to see if you have it? Except for the guy from like Kiss or something. Yeah. Where his tongue's just always hanging out. Or maybe Michael Jordan back in the day. <laughs> he also told her about how when Johnny would get really upset, he would stammer his speech almost to the point of like a stutter. Mm-hmm. And Noreen said that this information was only information that he could know from being in contact with her son. Now, whether it was just one of those things where she wanted to believe or she truly felt he was, you know, in contact with her son, I don't know. Yeah. But it's worth mentioning. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like that, like those types of things sound are more compelling to believe than like our Hell's Angel guy story because I mean unless you're really going out of your way to you know find information about this kid like the scars and like I mean the scar I guess maybe you could see like in pictures or something so then you would know but like if this whole like when he was upset and like the stuttering or whatever like that could be unless you're just shooting in the dark with that one on a guess you know i feel like those types of uh what's the word like specifics are more compelling to believe you know right yeah i'm with you definitely more credible than the guy that said he was a hell's angel Now, while this all seemed legitimate, law enforcement authorities determined that Paul Benaki was not a credible witness. Why? And, well, from what I understand, they never even interviewed him. Okay. In regards to Johnny Gosh's disappearance, which you would think you would want to at least talk to the guy, even if you thought he was full of shit. Yeah. I mean, how many people get interviewed? How many countless people do we see get interviewed that you know had nothing to do with a crime or a disappearance and yet police are just covering their bases. Right. And yet they didn't think they had to interview this guy. Mm. But it is worth noting though, and I couldn't find a whole lot of information on this. Paul Benaki's own siblings apparently have stated a few times throughout the years that he probably wasn't telling the truth and Mm. In the matter, at least in the matter of what he was saying, in fact, they said he was at home at the time of Johnny's dis- disappearance, which remember, he had said that he was actually involved right. with Do- Johnny's disappearance. So who the hell knows, right? Yeah. 
Who knows? I mean, maybe he wasn't directly involved, but maybe he did see him or know him. Could be. Either way, somebody you want to talk to. Right. After this, the case sadly went cold for a long, long time. However, in something that sounds like it came straight out of a script, Noreen said that she finally made contact and spoke with her son, Johnny, years later in 1997. I'm sorry, what? Didn't see that one coming either? You know, I have not seen a lot of things coming that have happened. Now you can see why this case was a two-parter. Yes. There's too many WTF moments. Yeah. Far more than I am comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So like we've seen with so many couples after one of their kids goes missing or tragically dies, it seems Noreen and John Sr. had split up and she was living alone at the time. Mm -hmm. Now, this was around 2.30 a.m. when, according to Noreen... There was a knock at the door. A knock at the door, even? Yeah. Okay. When she opened, there was her son, Johnny, she said. She explained later that she recognized him almost instantly. And for further proof, Johnny had actually lifted up his shirt and revealed that birthmark that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And that kind of solidified it for her. So Johnny was 27 years old at this time. But he didn't come to Noreen's house alone, it appears. An unidentified man accompanied him and apparently was there to gently let Johnny know if he was saying too much to his mother, it sounds like. So... Here's what Noreen would later say happened during Johnny's visit. You ready for this? Yep. She said, quote, we talked about an hour or an hour and a half. He was with another man, but I have no idea who this person was. Johnny would look over to the other person for approval to speak. He didn't say where he was living or where he was going. The night he came here, he was wearing jeans and a shirt and a coat because it was March. It was cold and his hair was long. It was shoulder length and it was straight and dyed black. Okay. Just kind of chilling to hear. But he didn't say a whole, again, he didn't say a whole lot about what had happened to him, why he was on the run whether or not he would be back. And remember that other guy was there with him to kind of make sure he didn't say too much. Right. I. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I hate to say it, but this, this doesn't sound real. Well, you're not the only one. And for the record, Johnny's father, John senior, isn't entirely sure it was real either. He's not sure if the meeting ever took place. But I will say it's hard to question a mother who at that point had been 
desperately searching for any sign of her missing boy for over, what, 15 years? Yep. I mean, imagine what that can do to a person's psyche, let alone a mother of a child. Exactly. Sometimes you're willing to believe anything. Right. And a few years later in 2002, Noreen even wrote a book about that event and the entire fucking surreal experience surrounding this case. It was called Why Johnny Can't Come Home, which I haven't read yet, but I did order it. So don't be surprised if there's like a part three in this case coming in the near future. I'm just saying. Yeah, um, definitely let me borrow it. Right. So even though Johnny hasn't been officially identified since his disappearance, at least some good came from the national spotlight which was placed on his abduction at the time. In 1984, the Johnny Gosh Bill became law, which states that law enforcement must immediately respond to reports of missing children. So Johnny's parents definitely made a difference in that respect. No more waiting 72 hours. None of that bullshit. Mm -hmm. And if you want to dive deeper and believe me, There is a lot further down this rabbit hole you can go on this one. Yeah. A few years back, uh, there was a documentary titled Who Took Johnny that was released. I know it's streaming right now on multiple outlets. And it has interviews with a number of individuals that I've spoken about in this case, including both of his parents. So if you want to get a gauge on his mom's mindset and what his dad is like, it's a good documentary. It's worth the view. Thanks. And let's hope that we get some kind of resolution here, not only to the disappearance of Johnny Gosh, but also the disappearances of Eugene Martin and Mark Allen, neither of which have ever been found either, which is one of those things that just makes the hair on your arms stand up when you think about that. Yeah. That we just, we just don't know. All these paper boys kept going missing in the 80s. It's definitely a pattern. And we all know that like the 70s and 80s were just like the era of serial killers. So Yeah. And maybe it was a serial killer. Maybe it was a pedophile. Maybe it was a, a ring. We don't know. I'm not the biggest conspiracy guy in the world. But there is shit that we just don't know about. Shit that's been covered up for years. And hopefully somebody will unearth something that leads to some sort of resolution to this case and maybe finds out what happened to all these young boys. Yeah, for sure. And there it is. Sucks. It does kind of suck. But I think getting this case out there to new listeners only helps spread the word. And that's what we're all about, spreading the word. It is. And you know where else we spread the word? I think you're going to say telegram or maybe a telegraph. No. Oh, shit. I was going to say on our Instagram page. Oh, of course. Unnatural the podcast or our Facebook page, Unnatural the True Crime Podcast. 
You can also do the words on Gmail, on naturalthepodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon page set up. That is patreon.com slash unnaturalthepod. Come hang out with us on any of those social medias. And like we tell you all the time, do not forget to rate, subscribe, follow, and most importantly, share us with your friends because it helps us. It helps you, I think, because when you recommend, like when you recommend a podcast to your friend and they listen to it and they're like, yeah, that was really good. Like you earn credibility with your friend. Well, not only those are some of the best podcasts I've ever found. When a good friend tells me, oh, my God, you got to listen to this podcast. Yeah. I'm more inclined to listen to it. Absolutely. So do so that. get the word out there. Do it. Just do it. Make it your New Year's resolution that you're going to tell at least five friends about Unnatural. I challenge you. Gonna, I dare you. You're, you're going to challenge me? I will do it. I no, swear. No, not you. Oh, fine. I well, won't. you too. Everybody. I'll do it. You do it. Everybody who's listening, do it. And then let's just Chain reaction. bring in 2023 in style. <laughs> anyway. Rant over. Yeah. Well, we will talk to you guys next week. And in the meantime, be sure to make good choices. And don't get got. Bye. So last week, are we still recording? Were, or are we stopping? No, we're still recording. Oh yeah, because I gotta finish. I gotta update you guys on my story about my mom and the yeah. charm bracelet. Okay, so quickly tell the story that you told last <clears throat> week in the outtakes. Okay, so what happened was we were on a family vacation in um, California, and we were kind of just going around to these little shops. And my mom had one of those little charm bracelets that were super popular in like the early mid 2000s or i guess it was like late 2000s the aughts. This was, huh they call them the aughts by the way what's the aughts the 2000s i just learned that oh this was like 2006 or 2007 mm-hmm. anyhow so if you remember and if you were around back then they had these little charm bracelets that had like interlinking chains and then you could get different things anyway so my mom bought one and she comes over and she's like oh my god like look at how look at this cute little charm and i look at it and i'm like i love my dachshund and she's like what do you mean and i was like it says i love my dachshund and she was like oh my god i thought it said i love my husband and i was like no no <laughs> And that's where the story ended. And I challenged you to go talk to your mom because you couldn't remember what she did with it. If she kept it, if maybe she kept wearing it or if she got rid of it and never wanted to think of it again. So you did talk to your mom. What happened with the uh, bracelet? Yeah. So um, she went back to that shop the next day and she exchanged it for something else. (laughs) Maybe it was a I love my husband bracelet. I don't think so. 
I don't oh, okay. I don't know what she got. She didn't remember what she got to replace it, but she does remember taking it back. <laughs> she should have taken it to and I just googled this. The Dachshund Club of America, which was founded in 1895. Okay. Apparently, it's a truly one-of-a-kind place for a truly one-of-a-kind dog. Mm. Cute. And Emily, what he told her... Oops. ...gave... Well, anticlimactic. Sorry. And Emily, what he told her, gave her both a sense of hope and of dread. Oh, no. What did he tell her? I love it when you say, oh, no, because that's when I always go into, like, that musical break, if you've noticed. Like, I always set it up for you to say, oh, no, and then I go into the musical break. I've done that, like, a million times, and you always fall for it. Not that it's, like, a bad thing to fall for, but I'm letting you in on my... Well, now I know. Yeah, but you'll forget by the next time I do. <laughs> that is fair. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, ADD. 